Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 29th of March 2021 and this is episode 201. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to Professor Ian van der Waag, Professor and Head of Department of Military History at Stellenbosch University, and Dr Tony Garcia, Research Fellow at Stellenbosch University, about their research into the life and career of Jan Smuts, Boer military commander and South African soldier. Ian and Tony spoke to me over the interweb from their respective homes in South Africa and Scotland. Ian and Tony, welcome back to the Dispatches podcast. Now, today we're going to address another titan of South African First World War history, and that is Jan Smuts. But before we get into him and his career, could you both start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in the First World War? Ian, could we start with you? Yes, thank you, Tom, and good morning. Um, I'm attached to the South African Military Academy, the Department of Military History, where I'm also Professor... um, from Stellenbosch University. And I started my career as an historical services officer in the military archives in Pretoria as a national serviceman. And it was there that I first encountered Smuts and the complexity um, that this man um, was. Uh, He was a soldier, he was a scholar, philosopher, a statesman, a military strategist, a botanist, and so many other things. And it was at that time that I first trawled through something of his papers And the man started to draw me more and more. And more recently, of course, he's become something of a controversial figure uh, in terms of the fallist movement, uh, both here in South Africa and in Britain. Um, And this has really drawn me back to him. Tony, tell us about how you became interested in the First World War and and you became sort of involved with Smuts. Uh, Thanks for that, Tom, and good morning. Um, For for me, I'm about myself a little bit, so I'm attached as a non-resident fellow to the um, to the military academy or to the faculty of military science department of military history and through my studies um, i've always encountered smart as a very fascinating figure he he definitely excites the imagination in the way that he that, that, that one reads about him, very intellectual, energetic, always um, always innovating, working with new ideas, and he touches on so many different aspects. So he was a strategist, but also a scholar and a philosopher, and you see him taking this very, his intellect to, to so many different spheres as a minister, and I think this is something that uh, that's, that's definitely fascinating. And for myself, I, I was a soldier studying at the, the was an officer studying at the military academy a good number of years ago. And as as, as we do, we studied previous generals and campaigns. Of course, much came up, and I think the mission has stuck with me ever since. Could we start by t- talking about his early life and his um, sort of upbringing? Yes, certainly. Sorry, Tom. Oh, um, Spatz was, was born in the old Cape Colony and uh, his parents uh, were British subjects. He, uh, his father was a, a rather inconspicuous member of the, the Cape Colonial Parliament. Uh, they were not really well off. Uh, they were relatively poor. They were small landowners. They had a small farm in the area of Rebecca West. The family was relatively large and, and the Older boy was in fact earmarked um, to go into the church, the Dutch Reformed Church, and Smuts um, himself was thought would eventually take over the farm. And for that reason, he wasn't flagged for an education. 
And it was only really with the death of his older brother uh, that he actually, in his schooling now, received some sort of priority from his parents. And he took it like a duck to water. Uh, he finished his, his, his schooling. He received his schooling certificate within four years, but would normally have taken 11. And he found himself at the age of 16 at Victoria College, which of course later became Stellenbosch University. Uh, he finished a degree there, um, a basic sort of foundational, we might call it BA sort of uh, qualification at the time. And from there, he went to Cambridge University, uh, which was really his first acquaintance with Britain. Um, he came to love the, the university life and, of course, life in Britain. And I think he also came to identify himself, you know, on what it meant to be a British subject. It was sort of an opening of doors and windows um, for him. He comes back to South Africa, where he's now, of course, uh, he joins the bar, uh, sidebar. He's an attorney. But he's massively ambitious and he's looking for opportunities all the time. He wants to be more than just that inconspicuous MLA that his father had been. And so when Kruger approaches him uh, to move north and to join Kruger's cabinet as, a, as the Attorney General, Smuts, of course, seizes that opportunity and he moves north just before the outbreak uh, of the Second Anglo-World War. Tony, do you have anything to add? Yeah, uh, thanks for that time. I, I think um, Ian summarizes very well the early life of, of Smuts, and you start seeing at this point the, the idea of him finishing school in four years, uh, going to Cambridge and, and getting a double first. So we start seeing his intellectual prowess coming through. Also, what's interesting is something that, 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 that Ian mentioned is, is that he's, he's ambitious. He's extremely ambitious. So he comes to the Cape Colony and starts his own uh, legal practice, doesn't go too well. He gets in with Rose eventually and De Beers. And then after that, uh, after the uh, Jameson raid, he takes massive offense and then goes up north, as Ian's mentioned, and then gets, uh, sort of becomes the state attorney under Kruger's government. And this is interesting, a complete change for him and identifies very strongly with the Boer cause from then on. So I, I think that's the only bit that I could add um, for, for this part of his, of his early life. But uh, whether it was in the Cape Colony or in the Transvaal at the time, you see him strongly putting forward his, his intellectual abilities and making a very big impression. Now, the first time that, that so I suppose, um, he, he comes onto the British radar or, or into British history is during the Anglo-Boer War. Now, what role did Smuts play in that conflict? Uh, Smuts, at the start of the war, uh, was a member of the cabinet. He was the attorney general. Uh, he remained in Pretoria for the, what we might call the conventional phase of the war um, at the, right at the start. Um, and with the fall of Pretoria, really, he, that's when he takes uh, to the field um, together with a whole lot of other um, civil servants who now leave their offices. And he is um, very ambitious still, of course. He sees an opportunity here. Um, military rank, of course, was a, a very important lever in Boer society. And this was something he no doubt saw. Uh, you know, so to have his own command in the field and, and with the rank of a combat general, this meant something to him and to others um, very visibly. Um, and, of course, he then... Uh, conducts these two raids into the Cape Colony, um, these strategic raids to try and raise um, or set aflame uh, Afrikaner feeling in the Cape Colony, not forgetting that he was born there and his raid takes him right down deep into the Southern Cape. In fact, he sees the lights of, of Cape Town even, uh, so, so it is said. But ultimately, of course, this is not very successful. Um, perhaps at a strategic level, he diverts attention. Uh, he brings British resources, of course, away from other fronts. Um, but it doesn't really have a big effect uh, 
as it is uh, for the outcome of the war. I, if, if I could just add something over there on that, that was, I think, in a, as well encapsulated the formation of, of, of SMUTs um, in, in the field during the Anglo-Boer War. I'll, I'll just maybe add one point that SMUTs, even though he was a, an equivalent of an attorney general, and he starts taking command of a, of a small force, he, he, he always has this link to being a scholar or philosopher, and he makes, and he makes a, a comparison to to the South Africans facing the British as were the Greeks facing the Persian hordes and says that in some ways he compares the Boers to be like Leonidas fighting against the Persians at Thermopylae and uh, in the face of, of Xerxes' forces. And uh, you just see him sort of harking back to a time of, uh, of, of the classics or of antiquity. Um, although at the time, I, I think we could perhaps agree uh, with might be a bit controversial, but he certainly wasn't Leonidas uh, leading the forces. It might have been rather a that's the west or the eastern front. This, as a supplementary question, did Smuts have any sort of pre-existing military training before he um, actually was involved in combat operations during the Anglo-Boer War? I, I, I think Ian might have a better, much better insight on this one. Um, I was just going to say it was highly limited. Um, and I think it was it was very limited to to some sort of volunteer training in, in Southern Bosch and around there. That, that's 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 absolutely true, uh, Tony. Um, there was a small Stellenbosch volunteer corps, um, which was part of the the Cape militia system and drew from the university. You know, the students, the, the body of university students uh, and members of the corps included Smuts as well as interesting enough CF Bayers, and their paths were to cross several times after that. Um, but this was very rudimentary. It would have been rudimentary shooting, very little drill. Um, they did wear uniforms. There was some regimentation, but not very much. Um, a good point that Ian mentions about Bayers, and this is actually something I, I want to touch on a little bit. Um, and it's, it's interesting that he draws the line back to to, to that that initial service. Um, was that all through World War, we see so much trying to distance himself. And this was going to be... Uh, a bit of conflict that was going to reoccur later on, um, you know, b during the time of the rebellion. But we see Smuts trying to be much closer to Puerta and also to Del Rey when he takes to the field. And as a, as a young commander, we see him once again, this recurring theme of ambition. And he writes to Puerta and he writes to Del Rey saying he wants to be promoted to assistant or acting assistant commandant general. But we see this 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 theme of him wanting that status and, and to go from platform to platform. And this comes out during the war. So he achieves a limited success in his campaigns. No one doubts that he's a brave man. He he goes forward and, and is not scared to do reconnaissance from the front, to lead from the front, and has several very close encounters when he's when he's on campaign. One time it, it, it was claimed of the companions to the left and right of him were shot down and Smuts managed to get away. Um, and of course, a lot of the exploits was was, was captured by his, his colleague and confidant, Denise Reitz, um, in the book on Commando. So uh, mm. this brings again a very interesting person, scholar, uh, ambitious, and also a brave man himself. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Ian. I totally agree, uh, Tony. Um, and I think you're right too, you know, the Anglo-Boer War was really the, the parting of ways in many, many senses, you know, uh, between the Boer leaders. Uh, as these Boer armies were sort of reforged, you know, after the meeting at Saferfontaine at the start of the, the, the guerrilla side of the war, um, we, we see a parting of ways, you know, Smuts and Boer on the one side and the others 
um, you know, who had perhaps a more of an iron hand. They, they used the whip on their own men, uh, men like Defect and Bayers and others. And they also, there was also a growing difference, you know, in terms of vision for the future. You know, Smuts and Boerter too, I believe, you know, could see something bigger and better that might come out of the war. Um, even then, I think, uh, whereas Bayers and, and Defect and the others tend to be far more reactionary in wanting to, to restore a status quo ante. So th- that that brings us neatly into the next question on the uh, sort of the outcome of the Anglo-Boer War and what follows. Now, Smuts obviously has a leading role in South Africa during the period from 1902 to the outbreak of the First World War. I wonder whether we could start by talking about the, his political role in the formation of the Union and maybe if we could just then look at the 1912 Defence Act, which obviously has implications for South African forces during the First World War. So after the we smuts and Puerta really down on them. They, they, they're really feeling that there's there's no way forward. And at this point, it's really Puerta who's the one that, that pushes forward the vision of a united white South Africa. So that's the joining of Poor and, and Britain in South Africa. And Smuts takes takes in trend behind Puerta and, and becomes a strong force. He puts all his intellectual abilities behind Puerta. And what we see over there is the two men forming the head fork together. And that essentially is a, a deformed of agrarian society, commando system, and bit by bit, we see that the the two men, the strong political party in the Transvaal, and achieve independence for the Transvaal, and later on go on to forge the Union of South Africa, and that's in 1910. With I'm just going to skirt over this, but what we see very, what comes through very strongly at this time is Smuts' amazing capacity for work. We see him at one point taking on three ministries. That's the as Axis Minister of Defence, Interior, and Mines. Essentially, what Wood is doing over there and Smuts are doing, they they keeping power very close. They're keeping the cards close to their chest and they're also centralizing power. They want to make sure that they have all the influence required to control to control the finance and to control the military arm. And that comes through, that's very important to, to these two men as they ensure their place in the future of South Africa. And I think I can hand over perhaps on the forming of the Defence Act, which was a very important uh, legislative piece which Smuts, which Smuts engineered and which essentially allowed for the formation of the Union Defence Force. Perhaps at that point I can pass the baton over to Ian. Thank you, Tony. Um, yes, the, the Union Defence Force uh, was a compromise like the Union itself. Um, here we see the different uh, colonial forces from the, Cape, the four colonies coming together and merging into a new force. And of course, there's a lot of balancing that had to happen there because you had former poor um, soldiers in these forces alongside former colonial soldiers, some British instructors and members from various different police forces and constabularies that had been brought together after July of 1912 to form this new force. And this was a very difficult portfolio to have, particularly because um, Christian Bayers, whom we've already mentioned, is the Commandant General of the Active Citizen Force. And politically, he doesn't see eye to eye with Smuts, not at all. The second thing really too that I'd like to highlight here is the whole notion of a greater South Africa, is that the Union was not seen as a a definite, finite um, state. Um, The borders were seen to be flexible. And Smuts himself thought, we see this in his writings, you know, that South Africa could grow almost organically, much as the United States had done, from a number of small um, starter colonies, if you will, in this case, uh, the four, and, and grow into a far larger state, perhaps encompassing much of um, southern um, Africa, perhaps almost everything south of the equator. 
And this is something we really need to see, you know, together with the Union Defence Force, this notion that South Africa was something that, that could grow organically. And using this tool, the Union Defence Force, and the opportunities that wars might create, um, this new state could perhaps grow further and develop. Um, and this is a strong theme that comes through with regard to the country's goals and objectives as far as the first and then, of course, later the Second World War concerned. Now, we come to the First World War. Now, Smuts is involved in the First World War in a number of ways. He was important in, in suppressing the so-called Africana Rebellion of 1914. He uh, was integral to the invasion of German Southwest Africa. He commanded forces in German East Africa and was eventually seconded to the Ministry of Defence in London. Starting with the rebellion, could we discuss what happened and what Smuts' part was and then maybe look at the other areas that I've just mentioned, which is a long list, I know. As you've mentioned, it really is a long list, and I think it shows his versatility. And whether whether you're a fan or a critic, the one thing that most people can agree on was that Smuts was was versatile and, and able leader. In the Afrikaner Rebellion, what we see from Smuts is that he is Minister of Defence, and he becomes the water who takes to the field in a more active role. Smuts becomes the, the administrator of the rebellion, and he starts turning around the, 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 the headquarters in Pretoria, the defence headquarters, and also the Ministry of Defence. With a very small staff, he becomes highly efficient in his kind of way and ensures that all logistics and preparation is done and planning is done, of course, with Boeta at the head. Um, there's a number of things that, that, that Smuts does really well over here. And besides bringing his, his uh, intelligence and intellect to bear, very much the, the, the infrastructure of South Africa is is, is, is mobilized. So we see um, South African forces using the strategy of the central position. We have uh, local networks of intelligence, that's or intelligence networks rather, that's that's harnessed by SMUT. He's got connections in most of the different uh, rural areas and towns, and they feed back information which allows the Union Defense Force to deploy as necessary to the hotspot. So we at this point, we see SMUT in, in an administrative role. He's, he's a chief of staff to Puerto in, in, in that sense and, and we see him uh, bringing the the sort of pulling the department of defense into into the modern age making it into a new type of machine although perhaps it could be argued that the rules of the union defense force were still antiquated but we see his him coming forward now in this role of the modernizer and, and uh, i think at that point i can i can hand over to ian for anything else to to add on that yes tony i think that's a very important point you raise there um is that the rebellion um while it was perhaps not quite foreseen on the scale in which it happened. It also presented an opportunity to, to Smuts, who always wanted a more modern defence force. And of course, the defence force of 1912, as we've just noted, was a compromise. So with Bayers out of the way, he drowned in, in December 1914. Delaray was no longer present. He'd been shot in September of 1914. And many of the others who'd gone into rebellion were now in jail or were um, contained on their farms. Uh, Smuts now had an opportunity to move in and do what I think he always wanted to do, and that was to shake out the defence force, uh, get rid of the commando system, or certainly downscale its importance inside the structures, and to develop something of a, what we might call a kind of a general staff system, uh, based on officers who passed through colleges, who had professional qualifications, and to wash out this sort of amateur tradition which had marked the South African military through its history. 
So yes, that was certainly the modernizer, and he was opportunistic. He saw the opportunity here, and he seized it with both hands, I believe. Now, from the rebellion, he then moves on to assist with the invasion of German southwest Africa, which is modern-day Namibia. Namibia, of course, or or German southwest Africa, uh, was a German colony at the time. It was contiguous to Union territory. Uh, Smuts and Boerta, of course, had had their eye on this territory. The outbreak of the war, there was going to be a division of the German colonies, of course. Um, it would have been very nice for them if they could bring this territory within this greater union that they, that they were looking to, to forge. Uh, the planning, of course, for the rebellion was very, uh, for the, sorry, I beg your pardon, the, plan, the planning for the German Southwest campaign was rather difficult. South Africa didn't have a navy. How would they deploy their forces forward? Um, if they had to attack German Southwest from the, the south only, of course, then the Germans could use the depth of the territory, the deserts, the poor infrastructure, of course, to their advantage. And so eventually the first invasion um, failed. Uh, we've already discussed this with our previous um, chat about Louis Boerter. And the second invasion is then launched after the, the, the quashing of the Afrikaner Rebellion. Uh, Boerter takes command of the northern forces and Smuts eventually from March 1915 is in command of the southern forces. And they drive, of course, the Germans north uh, into the northern part of the ter- territory where eventually a capitulation uh, is signed. Now, Smuts, right from the outset, saw um, the utility of being very um, lenient to the Germans. Um, they were not treated very poorly. And of course, the idea was, was that with any peace settlement, this territory would be, um, become part, perhaps the fifth province of the Union of South Africa. And these Germans, of course, would be Union citizens. And for this reason, they had to take a very lenient approach. And we see that um, throughout the, the subsequent war years. Um, this, this whole notion that they had to be almost um, cherished and, and located and brought very peacefully into this new union, which is, of course, eventually um, what happens uh, in fact, if not if not in law. One point that I could perhaps add, I think um, there's not much I can, can add in terms of the command of Smut, because um, he takes over command of the southern forces, and in many ways, uh, that's a token command. Um, most of the work's already done by by the subordinate commanders in the field, and that's Van Deventer, Varange, and then Mackenzie. But nonetheless, he appears there. He, he's still in communication with Boerter. Of course, he's also running that administration back home in South Africa, and this during a very important year, 1915, which was an election year. So while having one hand in the campaign, Smuts and Boat are very concerned about the elections later that year. And of course, with, with all that the, the division that the First World War had brought on South Africa. But would point that I want to mention, just uh, if, if I could before we move on, is that after the campaign, um, we see that the Ovumbo people had a, a crisis and they reached out to the South African government saying that their people are facing starvation. And Smuts then comes back uh, and creates a a humanitarian program which which provides food in some cases it's labor for food and help and saves saves many lives of the Vumbu people. So in this case we see a, a side to Smuts which is perhaps patriarchal. He he cares for people, although on his terms many times it's re- remembered in a more brutal way, in a more cold way. But there's definitely the side to him also where, where he is considering caring people. Although I must say it is on his terms and in the modern context we he's of course seen as a as a supremacist, as a white supremacist and, and many of his policies furthering those aims. But we like to see the man through historically through all the different lenses. And one point that was interesting and perhaps less uh, well known was the 
Ovambo humanitarian relief that he did after the, the German Southwest Africa campaign. Which brings us on to his next uh, adventure during the First World War, which is command of forces in German East Africa during the campaign of 1916. Could you tell us about that? Yes, um, I can I can start us off perhaps. Um, I think what's the first part about this is that Smart starts putting his eye on German East Africa while the German Southwest African campaign is underway. And Boetus said, wait, hang on, touch this, and then move to the next, one thing at a time. And of course, there's a bit of ambition from Smuts again. Um, he becomes commander of the of the German East African campaign in early 1916. Smith Darien falls ill, and he, for the first time, takes command of a very large force, approximately 70,000, all in all, in the field. And it's a polyglot force, it's a multinational force, and he faces a lot of critique, critique for being, in inverted commas, an amateur, people criticizing him for being, in inverted commas, a Dutchman, um, for not knowing the British system, for a range of reasons. And uh, he, of course, in his in his style, comes forward and, and takes the count of what was said by previous commanders, but makes his own decision and does not wait for the dry season, but immediately pushes forward with a, a an envelopment on the operational level. And in doing that, much achieved uh, what, what some of his predecessors weren't able to do, which was to dislodge Valeto um, Forbeck, who was a, was, was a very capable German commander, and of course became famed afterwards for his use of guerrilla warfare in inverted commas, or guerrilla tactics, um, all through Germany, East Africa, and then of course, uh, Portuguese East Africa also. Um, but so at the start, we see much being critiqued initially, but the, there's always definitely a question about his disregard for, for previous advice, for the terrain, and for some of the environmental health factors, such as the tsetse fly. And uh, perhaps I can, I, can, I can hand over to Ian at this point. Yes, thank you, Tony. Um, that, that criticism, of course, ran very deep, and even back in South Africa, you know, the question of supplies and logistics and, and the well-being of the troops, and the government actually concedes a commission of inquiry uh, into this, and the outcome is not very favourable. Um, Smuts comes over as a very cold uh, commander, one who will rather achieve objectives and perhaps allow uh, the well-being of his troops uh, to suffer as, as a result. And of course, this also takes another angle in, the, in, in that the war in, or the campaign in East Africa was fought on the backs of African porters, you know, who had to convey everything everywhere. And the death toll among the, the, the porters was particularly severe um, from dysentery, from malaria, from, from various other tropical diseases. So the picture that emerges is not, not a very good one, not a very pleasant one. And it shows a very different side to this man, quite different from the previous campaign. I don't know if you agree with that, Tony. Oh, no, I, I completely agree with that. Um, yeah. I think I think what's interesting, is exactly as you say, it, it's, it's a very, almost, one could say, almost cruel side, the expense of, of human and animal life and the expense of the campaign. And, yeah. and and as you mentioned, he does achieve some territorial gains. So Africa, with, and of course, the, with the main focus, was on the Western Front. Um, I think many many strategists wanted to get some of those resources out to to Europe yeah. at this at this time. Yeah, that's that's very true. And of course, I mean the the campaign in East Africa too was just so different from the campaigns being fought uh, on the Western Front, or for that matter, at Gallipoli, for example. You know, we had large numbers of uh, of, of troops con concentrated in a relatively small space, and you had these enormous artillery duels, um, you know, and, and, and infantry in trenches. East Africa was entirely different. Uh, you had a very different ratio of force to space. It was largely an 
infantry for Mims Hall. Uh, cavalry uh, could play almost no role simply because of the tsetse fly and that no horse would, would perhaps survive longer than, than, than a matter of weeks, perhaps on average. And, uh, you know, everything had to be brought forward literally on the backs of these porters. Um, so, you know, very little um, artillery could be used and, and largely an infantry Mims war in, in a very unforgiving, inhospitable sort of environment, entirely different from the Western Front, you know, and that's something that we don't always remember when we weigh up, um, you know, the successes and failures of campaign. Following Smuts's posting as the commander in the Eastern East Africa Theatre, he was redeployed to London and he, and he served in the British War Cabinet. He was, in fact, uh, trusted by Lloyd George. Could you expand on this? Um, yes, um, Smuts moves to London. Uh, he arrives there, in fact, in, in March of 1917. Uh, he comes as something of the, the, the hero of the hour. Um, the campaign in German Southwest was successfully concluded. Uh, by the time he left German East Africa, more than 60% of the territory uh, was in British uh, Allied hands. And of course, you know, London has been suffering. Uh, British morale is, is at a low ebb. Uh, the German uh, air campaign, you know, against London ha has been underway. And basically everybody's now looking toward uh, some sort of change. Eventually we see also change in the British government uh, when Lloyd George becomes prime minister in the first or second week of December of 1916. And the push to have the dominions represented represented on the, on the, in the imperial war cabinet, of course, now becomes greater. It was something it seems that Asquith was, was less willing to do. And Hughes from Australia had nearly been approached. Um, but the thinking was, was that if somebody stayed shorter um, than, than five weeks, they wouldn't be able to really take their proper place. They would be able to, to make their presence felt. And so when, when Smuts arrived and, and Lloyd George had been most keen for him to join the, the War Cabinet, um, he's now taken in. And Smuts really spends the, well, <laughs> not just five weeks, but, but many months um, you know, attached to the, the Imperial War Cabinet and doing all kinds of different jobs. But very importantly, I think, Lloyd George believed that um, Smuts, I think this was actually Churchill, uh, but Smuts was the only unwounded statesman of outstanding ability in the empire and that perhaps he could come and unlock, perhaps bring fresh thinking to many of the problems uh, that they faced. Yeah, so I mean, I, I mean, just I don't. I, I think the, the the bulk of it was 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 covered by Ian, and I I, um, I think what's what's interesting is that Lloyd George uses uh, Smuts as as a troubleshooter and uses him in in, in many different ways over there. Uh, Smuts become become an interesting fellow. He 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 gets offered a process in Palestine, turns that down. He wants to be at the same time. We see that uh, I think the, there's a very interesting analogy that that Ian has, and I think it's best if he tells it. About about a, a discussion that happens about where we all, where some of the leaders discuss the great men of uh, of antiquity or of history and um, and and the opinions from that. Ian, could I hand over to you for that one? It, it is it's a yeah, good story that you found. <laughs> certainly, Tony. Well, something we actually discussed yesterday, uh, and um, there was a, a country weekend in August of 1917. And uh, Smuts was there with Lloyd George, Robert Cecil, Milner, the Italian uh, ambassador, Sonino, and one or two others. And they were discussing, you know, the whole question of crises in history and the rise of great men, you know, to cut through these Gordian knots and how Hannibal had come to the fore and Alexander, Caesar, Napoleon and various others. And this led, led on to really... Uh, 
two main thoughts. You know, one was, you know, the question of who of these was the greatest. And Sonino and Smuts agreed that Hannibal was for them the greatest, although we don't know exactly why they chose Hannibal uh, from that list. But very importantly, they noted, too, that in 1916, the crisis centered on no one man. There was no Caesar that had stepped forth in the British Empire. But the war and the way in which wars were fought had changed so much that the role of the so-called great man uh, had basically vanished, um, no longer centered on a single individual. There was no place for a Wellington or Marlborough um, you know, to make that, that difference. So that brings us to the Paris peace talks. Now, these were obviously significant uh, events in terms that they brought a number of significant international and Commonwealth leaders together. Now, Smuts was uh, an important figure in the talks. Could you give the listeners an insight into Smuts's position on the Treaty of Versailles? Yeah, yes, um, I think Smuts saw um, the, the Paris peace talks as a, as a moment in history. You know, a big w war had come to an end it was a, a war such as nobody had ever seen before. And that these sorts of opportunities, you know, that sort of come up only so often, you know, maybe once in a hundred or once in several hundred years, where one might shape a whole new world order, where things were, in Smuts's words, perhaps more fluid and plastic than they otherwise are, you know, where one can reshape and give some sort of uh, creative impression, as he put it, uh, to to the shape of the world. During the conference, Smuts identified three cardinal facts. Uh, one was the collapse of the alliance system and the balance of power, um, which would, would, of course, lead to this whole new world order, uh, this restructuring of interstate relations and the balance of, of military and, and other power in Europe and, and throughout the world. Second was the fragmentation you know, of Central and Eastern Europe um, and what this would mean in terms of perhaps growing instability. You referred to a patchwork of states from the, the Baltic Sea down to, to Istanbul. And the third, the survival of a united Germany, was that amidst the sort of restructuring, the one country that would remain perhaps large and united was in fact Germany. And how does one balance these three things? How do you, you manage this new uh, world order that was now emerging? And here, I think he found a lot of common ground uh, with uh, Woodrow Wilson, the American president. And perhaps, yeah, I should pass over to Tony. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, uh, yes, uh, Wilson held Smuts in very high regard. Um, there's two parts for me that's interesting about the, the Paris peace talks. Uh, Smuts and, and then, of course, Boerter that joined him. We uh, much for lenient terms, and we see that with what, with what happened in German Southwest Africa in, in peace terms after the German force they capitulated, and we can trace it back to the Treaty of Vienna, where um, where the Boer leaders felt that the British terms were too strong, too harsh, and uh, they much very strongly put forward that to to Lloyd George and to the other leaders that by putting strong terms on Germany by humiliating them. It will it, it will definitely lead to some sort of reprisal in the future to people not being happy and and Smuts strongly fights for this. However, eventually he is convinced by Bert and others that it must be and just through showing solidarity to the British Empire. Um, he 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 is interesting because in so many ways there's a contradiction to Wilson's uh, principles and the idea of. of independence to strength of the, to allow the weak weeks to form 
and saying all of this and at the same time writing the writing the chart for the League of Nations um, and, and all this talk about giving people rights to determination to form their own states. He then, so that's in the case of Europe, he says, but then he casts it, uh, there's a, a difference to German Southwest Africa where he says, oh, well, no, in that case, they'll just fall part of South Africa. He gets challenged by Wilson who says, hang on, what, what do you mean? The, of course, the Australian Prime Minister comes in also with, with territorial ambitions and and. and puts forward the argument that, no, we will annex the lands that we choose to because of war, what we've gained in war. And Smuts then applies his legal mind and says, well, um, we'll create the mandate system then. And he creates a mandate system of what's called mandate A, B, and C. And then Namibia, modern Namibia, or old German Southwest Africa, becomes a, a C mandate or mandate C, which just means that it's an acquisition of South Africa territory under the Union of South Africa. For 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 them, it was very important for Boat and Smuts to come home with this because a lot of, of, of their camp- political campaigning was on the back of gaining territories in the Great War. And I think, um, so I think in that one sees the complexity, they can, the contents, and some might even say he was a hypocrite. And all of that came forward in the Paris Peace Talks. <laughs> now, in Antonio, is there anything more to add on, on the Paris Peace Talks? So I'll go on to question 10. Uh, I realise I've not been as directive as I should have been on bringing people in, so I'm trying to just do that in the last two questions. Um, <laughs> but um, So for the purposes of what we've been discussing today, we've looked at mainly at Smuts, his formation and his role uh, during the First World War. But given his monumental career, in broad brushstrokes, could you give a few uh, highlights of um, his achievements during the rest of his life from sort of 1918 onwards? In 1919, Boote dies and Smuts returns from London and becomes the Prime Minister of South Africa. However, in South Africa, this is not going to last for very long and the wave of Afrikaner nationalism is rising and he holds office for a very short time. Um, That's up until 1924. And essentially, at at, at that point, we see, uh, during this time, we see Smuts' hand being very strong in certain ways, putting down any kinds of strikes or action in a a very strong way. Something that he did very differently to to when he was in London. Um, there's an anecdote that he was asked to put down a a a, um, a mining away strike in, in Wales, and in doing that, he used diplomacy and tact and actually asked the crowd to sing, and then slowly managed diplomatically to get them to go to to disperse. However, in South Africa or in Southern Africa, he used a much stronger approach, um, including the military, including the air force, um, and that's just something that made. But Smuts is that he was so incredibly versed. He also had an academic career and uh, became, the, I believe, he became the, the Chancellor of Cambridge. Uh, he, he, the, the first person of not a, who was not British to to hold that position. And there was definitely a side to him where he was a scholar and a philosopher, giving classes all over the world and putting forward his theory or his philosophy of um, perhaps at this point I can pass over to Ian and give a few more details about Smuts. Yes, uh, thank you, Tony. Uh, He goes into the political wilderness, as you say, in 1924, following the election where uh, Labour and the Nationalists had come together in an electoral pact. They formed a pact government, and and Smuts is now now in opposition. And that gives him a lot of free time to do some of the other things that he very much loves, Um, you know, walking the mountains, Table Mountain, Cedarburg collecting plant species, working, you know, with uh, botanists at various universities around the world, um, you know, building out on his theory of, of holism. And you see sort of the, the scholar philosopher emerging, as you've said, during this period. 
And then things change again uh, politically in South Africa in 1933, where we see the formation of the fusion government. And Smuts is now back in power. He's now Deputy Prime Minister alongside uh, J.B.M. Herzog, another former World War General. And they form a new political party, the South African National Party, um, was formed, uh, South African United National Party in 1933. And Smuts in this role, of course, is now sitting back at the, at the high table, so to speak. Um, he's back within the corridors of power. And we can see various sort of pieces being moved around uh, once again. Um, Smuts takes, well, he's not defence minister at this point. He still takes an interest in defence matters. The whole notion of a greater South Africa talks perhaps to include the High Commission territories within the Union, which, which, which ultimately fail. And of course, through to the build-up um, in 1939 with the outbreak of the Second World War, which of course brings another big moment, uh, moment of crisis, a moment of opportunity, which much seizes. And on the 6th of September 1939, he's once again Prime Minister, and once again a wartime Prime Minister. So for him, it was, it was his big moment. It had arrived. He's Prime Minister, Foreign Minister, Minister of Defence, a whole lot of portfolios in his hand again. And he is South Africa's um, warlord, I suppose you might say, for the next uh, five or six years. Um, eventually, of course, leading to 1948, which was the kind of catastrophic um, electoral defeat and the return of the, the nationalists to power together with the policy of segregation, apartheid, and the later history, which would unfold. And of course, Smuts dies in 1950. Um, almost alienated um, by his own people. Um, I think uh, the only point I would add is that uh, after the, the Second World War, uh, we see Smuts the internationalist again, and he is, is important in the, in the creation of the United Nations and in writing part of the, of the charter or the preamble. And I think this is, this is interesting where we, we see again the contradictions of, of Smuts, his beliefs in, in, in white superiority, but then speaking about um, you know, inter international cooperation, working together, independence, and so on, uh, something that is called out on, on later. But uh, really, in broad brushstrokes, I would say that's, that's all I could add at this point. Which brings me to my penultimate question about what's, what's your current sort of research and future projects that both of you are engaged in? There are a number of projects that we have uh, on the table at the moment. One, one is the SMAT Symposium, which we were going to hold in May um, this year to mark his 150th, 150th anniversary of his birth, which unfortunately we had to postpone due to COVID. Um, so we're looking to, to, to host this sort of deferred seminar um, at some future date when we can bring um, scholars to Stellenbosch to enjoy what every, you know, everything that Stellenbosch has to offer as well. So that's a big uh, project that we have uh, on, the, on the landscape relating to SMUTs. The second thing um, that we're looking to do, and, and I'm working with Tony on this, is to produce a new biography on Louis Buerta, uh, which is also uh, waiting in the in the wings. I'm afraid we also had a bit of a COVID setback, setback on that. And then at a personal level, something that really interests me at the moment is the whole question of soldier narratives and the voices of the ordinary South African soldier in both world wars, um, both published narratives, the so-called memoirs, but also more particularly perhaps those, those uh, undiscovered and published voices that one will find in archives. So those are the three projects that I would I would mention. Tony, what do you, what, what's what's getting your interest? 
thanks, Sam. So uh, I've, I've just recently uh, published an article with, with Evert Clenans, and that was on counterinsurgency in the Afrikaner Rebellion. And that touches, uh, it's, that's very closely linked to Smuts and and, 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 and their role with the UDF or the Union Defence Forces. And then also, as Zinas mentioned, we're also busy writing a biography or a new biography on Boerter. And the relationship between Smuts and Boerter is, of course, central. And the two really can't be, be taken apart in terms of, of political and, and, and military affairs throughout their lives, or at least of Boerter's life. So that, that in short, is, um, is, is my interest in, in Smuts. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your work on Boerter and Smuts? If people would like to access more of my work, it's available on, on ResearchNet or on Academia. And um, people, of course, also welcome to, to email me if they would like to know more. And I also do have a book on the German Southwest African campaign that was released last year. Yeah, thank you, Tom, uh, uh, Tony. Uh, yeah, I would, I, would, uh, um, I would say as a first port of entry, um, I would use the, the social media options in terms of ResearchGate and Academia, as Tony has, has mentioned. Um, I also have a broad, in fact, one of the first broad military histories of, of South Africa, and it was published by Jonathan Ball in 2015, and then a Northern Hemisphere edition was produced by Casemate in 2018 uh, in hardback. Um, and this, of course, pr- pr- uh, provides the a broad sweep of South African military history through uh, the 20th century. And, of course, the, the monumental figures, the smutses and so on, of course, stand very prominently in that. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks so much, You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>